there's so much that we could say about this. No More Night is really talking about the pain, the things that come up in our life. I don't know what your night is. I don't know if it's pain. I don't know if it's a lost job. I don't know if it's someone that you loved who is gone. It's hope for new beginnings. It's hope for new life. And the hope is centered in one thing, not in colored Easter eggs, not in spring pastels. It's hope, it's hope that's hidden in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John 20, verses 1 through 9 is what this story is all about. And I just want to read it for you again, the Easter story from the perspective of John. That's who Steve was playing. Great job for Steve, Bill, all of the people who are involved in the choir. But from John's perspective, he says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, the night was still there. And not only was it physically dark, but I think so many other ways the night was still there. While it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and that's John. That's what he always, how he always referred to himself, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. John got there first and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. Literally, what the Greek says, it was swirled around him. It would be like a turban, like a mummy. If you wrap a mummy, there's one Bible commentator, one Bible scholar that says it was just like the butterfly that's coming out of the chrysalis, except there was no place where it was split open. The grave clothes just collapsed like mummy style where they were, swirled around him. Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They, did, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, John tells us. I think there are two things that we get from this, and, and I want to talk about them very briefly. The first one is this, the death and resurrection of Jesus are essential. If you want to know where hope is, if you want to know how to have no more night in your life, if you want to know how to get there, the only way you can do that is, is to come back and understand that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus are absolutely essential. He had to rise from the dead. You see, Jesus died on the cross to give us new life. You say, well, my old life is not that bad. Well, that may be. But he died to give us a brand new life. The cross is in vogue in fashion today. Have you noticed that? If you go out, uh, we were looking for t-shirts for my son, and every t-shirt we saw had a cross on it. I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, it's on shirts. It's on purses. There's a whole line of purses, I'm told, that have the cross as their emblem. On jewelry. You see it on necklaces and, and uh, earrings, but on rings as well. It's even a popular tattoo design, the cross. You know what's interesting? I've never seen a woman with a necklace with an electric chair on it. And the cross was a, a horrible form of execution. That's how they killed people, by nailing through their hands, just under their palms, by nailing through their feet, and they would get on the cross and they would suffocate to death. It was agonizing. It took hours. We, we agonize over whether it's humane to give someone uh, just an, an injection, a lethal injection, and they were spending hours crucifying someone in, in huge, with huge amounts of pain involved. Why did Christians take something that was so hideous and make it their symbol. Because on the cross, 
everything wrong that I've ever done, on the cross, everything wrong you've ever done, it was nailed there. And Jesus did that for you, and he did it for me. We don't usually think we need radical forgiveness. See, the problem is, is we don't think we've done anything bad enough to go to the cross. I think most people think that Jesus grades on the curve. You remember what the curve was? You remember when you were in school and the teachers graded on the curve? You remember what that was all about? If you had everybody in their 70s or 80s, you know, you, you took a science test and you got 72 and you're thinking, oh man, I'm really going to be in deep trouble. And you find out the highest score was 75 and all of a sudden you got an A and you're saying, I love the curve. Didn't you always hate that guy that got 98 and ruined the curve? If you did that, no, I won't have you raise your hand. We, that might not be a good thing today. But we think that Jesus, that God grades on the curve, and as long as I'm better than the next guy, maybe God will let me into heaven, but the Bible never tells us that. Or we think that there's some great cosmic scale, and if all the good things we do are put on one side, and all the bad things, I mean, okay, yeah, we told a few lies, maybe we... we you know, maybe we looked at a couple of websites we shouldn't have looked at. Maybe we cheated a little bit on the taxes. It's just after April 15th. We don't want to talk about that. You know, those bad things that we did, they're on one side. But all the good things that we did, you brought candy home to your wife, so it was your favorite kind of candy. You still brought it home. You think if, if we could just pile up all the good things on one side and all the bad things on the other, if I do more good than bad, the Bible never says that that's how God grades us. God says all you have to do to get into heaven is to be perfect. Guess what? I failed. I failed that test, and so did everybody else. What we consider minor infractions, God says destroy any chance we have at a relationship with him. And here's a great verse. This is why the cross is so important. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, Christ forgave us all our sins, past, present, future, all our sins, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Listen, if nothing else, the cross proves that God loved us. For God to send his son to do that for us proves that God loves us. If you ever wonder if Jesus really loved us, look at the cross. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is a place where everything that we've ever done wrong was paid for. And the resurrection proved that Jesus was who he said he was. The resurrection proved that Jesus had the power he claimed to have. There were, four, uh, there were 10 recorded appearances over a 40-day period. Over 500 witnesses saw Jesus alive after the crucifixion. And by the way, if you ever wonder, did he really die? Those guys were great at crucifying. They were executioners par excellence. The Romans knew how to kill somebody. There was no question about that. Several men have, have researched this. Frank Morrison was a British lawyer. At one time, he, he wanted to prove that the resurrection was false, and he ended up writing a book called Who Moved the Stone, where he said the resurrection absolutely happened the way it was recorded. Lee Strobel was an award-winning uh, uh, writer in Chicago. And he worked, he worked for one of the Chicago papers, and he won all kinds of awards for his research and his analysis, and he began to, to research this, and he wrote a book called The Case for Christ, and this is what he says, there is ample proof of the resurrection from 10 different viewpoints. Simon Greenleaf, in the 1800s, was considered the greatest legal mind in the world, not just in America. He founded Harvard Law School. 
1850, he decided he was one, once and for all going to disprove the resurrection. He was not a believer. He was not a Christian. He didn't go to church. He didn't want to have anything to do with it. And he was tired of Christians coming to him at Easter and telling him about it. He looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he wrote a book called The Testimony of the Evangelist. And this is what he says, and I quote, It is impossible that the disciples could have persisted in affirming the truths they narrated had not Jesus actually physically risen from the dead, and had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact. Any court of law, he concludes, if presented with the evidence of the resurrection, would have to give a verdict in favor of the integrity and accuracy of the gospel writers, Jesus Christ rose that first Easter. That's what the greatest legal mind in the world in the 1850s said. 1 Corinthians 15, 4 says, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. But verse 20 says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Less than 25 years after the resurrection, with 500 people still there, Paul writes his letter to Corinth and he says, listen, Jesus was raised and he names names and gives times and no one refutes it. The witnesses were still alive and no one ever came and said it didn't happen. Why is that a big deal? Because if Jesus could do that, then if you have something that seems overwhelming, he is the one who can come to your rescue, to your aid. Ephesians 1, 19, 20 says, I pray that you may know the hope you may, have, you may know the daylight that's coming, the no more night in your life. I pray that you may know the hope to which he's called you and his incomparably great power for us who believe the power that raised him from the dead. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us if we believe. So the death and the resurrection of Jesus are essential if you want to have that life with no more night. And here's the second thing I want to just remark from John chapter 20. A decision is inevitable. A decision is inevitable. You have to decide one way or the other. So I want you to, I, I told you if you would hold on to your response card, I was going to ask you two questions. I'm going to ask Alex to bring the lights back up. Guys, bring the lights back up. And here's the two questions. Here's the first question. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Now don't write yet. Don't write yet. Because some of you, as soon as I said that, oh yeah, I've got this one. Okay. They just tuned me out. You took your pen and said, okay, what am I supposed to write? Yes, I can do that. Okay. Are you a follower of Jesus? There's no impact from a lot of people. It's so familiar we tend to dismiss it. I've decided that all of the world should be divided into two groups. Here's the first group. The first group is the people who have the silver Jesus fish on the back of their car. The people who have that. You know, they, they go to the Christian section in the bookstores and they buy the Christian wear and they have t-shirts with the Jesus on the cross. They have the, sil the, the little fish. You've seen the silver? How many of you have seen a silver fish on the Okay, I just want to make sure you're awake. I was checking. You see, I didn't ask you if you had a silver fish on the back of your car. I didn't say, I, I didn't ask you. I, I ran across a list of what people, when they hear follower of Jesus, this is what they hear. I'm not asking you if you go to church five to six times a year. I'm not asking if your parents or your grandparents were Christians. I'm not asking, do you own three or more Bibles? I'm not asking if your name and or picture have ever been a, in a church directory. I'm not asking if you go now to VBS or church camp or have ever gone to VBS or church camp. I'm not asking if your ringtone is a worship tune. I'm not asking if you can pray using three or more synonyms for God. I'm not asking if you say bless their heart before you speak badly about somebody. 
That's not what I'm asking. To quote Inigo Montoya, I do not think that means what you think it means. And if you knew that Inigo Montoya is from Princess Bride, you can give yourself an extra point. I do not think that means what you think it means. On the day that Jesus had probably one of the largest crowds, one of two times that he had the largest crowds of the Sermon on the Mount, all these people were gathered around in Matthew chapter 7. He gave the Sermon on the Mount. I've been there just six weeks ago, standing there looking at this big amphitheater or this, this bowl in the side of the mountain where Jesus could speak. Seven, eight, nine thousand people could easily listen to him because of the natural acoustics in this bowl. And Jesus said the most chilling words he ever said. Because people would come to him and say, Lord, our parents and our grandparents were Christians. Lord, we've taught Sunday school. And Lord, our picture's been in a church directory. And he says, I don't know you. I never knew you away from me. Jesus wants to know if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, there's the other group. I told you about the group that has the fish on the back. There's another group, and this is the group. You wonder why your friend has the fish on the back of the, of the car, on the back of the vehicle. You skipped the question when I said, are you a follower of Jesus? Not because it offended you, not because you were worried about it. It just doesn't mean anything. I mean, you're just not into it, and, and you just don't think it really matters that much. It's kind of like, and I... I found this and I like this. Kind of like when a friend who is really into Star Trek, you know Star Trek, the movie, the, the, the series that's gone on and on and on. How old is Star Trek now? Kirk is, what, 114, so I mean it's old. <laughs> it's kind of like a friend who is really into Star Trek says, ta'a soha ta'a hoda. That's Klingon for should Spock be the captain. I learned Klingon just for today. <laughs> I did not translate that. I don't know if I pronounced it right. I actually don't speak Klingon. I speak real languages that actual people speak. But you're not into Star Trek and somebody speaks Klingon and you say, yeah, whatever. And you're really not into being a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't really care. What if all of life comes down to you answering this one question? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? What if there really is a heaven and there really is a hell? And how you answer this, are you a follower of Jesus Christ, will determine where you're going to spend eternity. Even though you may not be into it, what if the real, real reason you were put on this earth is to answer that one question, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And whether you consciously or intentionally answered or not, by your life you are answering it. I'm not trying to sell you Jesus. I've been a little bothered recently by people who get up and they, they make this big deal about, oh, please, 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 please accept Jesus. Please, please, please believe in Jesus. If I had a daughter and she was 25 years old, and I actually have a daughter 30 and she's married, but what if I had an unmarried 25-year-old daughter and she came to me and she said, hey, Dad, I really want to be married. And I had this whole thing set up, and this, this is what I said. Okay, Liz, my daughter, my love of my life, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put ads in newspapers, and I'm going to have big houses put together, and I'm going to make T-shirts with, please marry my daughter on it, and I'm going to put billboards on there, and I'm going to put her picture up there, and I'm going to say, please, 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 please marry my daughter. Kind of cheapens 
love, doesn't it? I'm much more along the line of meet the parents, Robert De Niro with the lie detector and the shotgun and the... <laughs> my son-in-law now, when he came to meet me for the first time to ask for my daughter's hand in marriage, he said, I, want, I, I was so petrified, and I said, Sam, we were staying at a hotel, and I said, let's go for a swim, and we jumped in the pool, and I, the poor guy, he was so cold, he was shaking the whole time. It was 104 out. I'm not trying to sell you Jesus. I'm just trying to ask whether you fall into the group where you wonder why the, the fish is there or you fall into the group where you say, I've got this fish. The question still remains, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Here's what worries me. I, I read a little book called Not a Fan, Kyle Eidelman. Here's what really worries me. I think there are a lot of people who are fans of Jesus but not followers of Jesus. You're a fan of Jesus. You showed up on Easter. Come on, you're a fan of Jesus. You, you know, uh, I looked up Webster's Dictionary. A fan is an enthusiastic admirer. In sports, maybe you're a fan of Tim Tebow. You remember Tim Tebow, the football player? You know all his, his college stats, and you know what team he went to, and you know how he played his first year in the NFL. You know what, bl black, uh, what Bible verses he put on the black under his eye every time that he... I mean, you know all about Tim Tebow. But if Tim Tebow were to walk down the aisle today and you'd say, Tim, I'm your biggest fan, he would say, who are you? The other time that Jesus had a huge crowd, 5,000 men plus all of their families showed up and Jesus fed them five loaves, two fishes. He multiplied it. He, and, and all of a sudden, this whole crowd, probably 15,000, 20,000 people. Again, I've been there. I've seen where it happened. And 15,000, 20,000 people are fed it's at night, they're hungry, and they all had plenty of fish sandwiches. And the next morning they wake up and they're going to go to the breakfast buffet because Jesus is still there except he's not there. And they can't find him and they begin to look for him everywhere and they're trying to find where Jesus is. And finally they find him and they said, where were you? And he says, you just wanted more food. And they said, well, yeah, you did such a great deal with the five loaves and two fishes. Here's our order for the day. And he says, no, I am the bread of life. If you want to be satisfied in your life, it's not going to come in the food. In John chapter 6, it says at the end of the chapter that many no longer followed him. The fans went home. Jesus is not looking for fans. He's looking for followers. There's a third category. I won't mention it because you showed up today. I don't think you fall in the third category. The Bible says in the Old Testament, the fool has said, the fool has said in his heart, no God for me. So here's the two questions. Are you a fan or are you a follower of Jesus Christ? And I want you to write on your response card, honestly, today, are you a fan or are you a follower? The ushers are going to have some plates at the back as you leave, and you'll be able to drop them in. Let me close it all up maybe by this. My wife and I went to see a movie. We rarely get to do that, but we broke away last week, and we went to see a, mo a movie. It's a true story based on the life of Beth Bethany Hamilton. It's called Soul Surfer. Soul Surfer. 13-year-old on October 31st is out uh, in Hawaii. October 31st, 2003. 
She's surfing. She is an incredible teenage surfer. She's already made all kinds of waves, excuse the pun, but she's made all kinds of waves in the surfing world because they see that this girl has the potential to be this incredible champion, and she's dangling her left arm in the water, and a 14-foot tiger shark comes up and bites her arm off just below the shoulder. She lost 60% of her blood before they could get the, blood, the, get the bleeding stopped. The doctor said if it had gone two inches further, there would absolutely have been no chance for her to live. In fact, the doctor said that he could not believe that she lived to get to the hospital. They had to pull her father from the operating room. He was going to have a knee operation that day. Pulled her father, true story, from the operating room because it was the only operating room they had in the little hospital. Bethany Hamilton is a believer. This is what she said in, when she was 15 years old. I believe in God. Nobody made me believe. I just do. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. When people ask me what my faith in Christ means to me, I usually answer in one word, everything. This was true before the shark attack as well as after. I truly believe that this faith is a big part of what did get me through on that day. It helps to know that even when you don't have a clue why something has happened in your life, God has the master plan. He's watching over you. It's a tremendous relief to be able to put your trust in God and take the burden off your shoulders. For me, knowing that God loves me and has a plan for my life that no shark can take away and that no surfing contest result can ever shake is like having solid rock underneath me every minute of the day. Bad things happen to everyone. That's life. Don't put all your faith and hope into something that could suddenly and easily disappear. Honestly, that's about everything else in life. The only thing that will never go away, that will never fail you, is God. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're a follower. You've come into new life. You have the faith. You're a part of the family. I guess the last illustration I was in Israel. I had an operation on my left knee five weeks before we went to Israel. We walked all over. We went upstairs, downstairs. I did really well until we got to one thing. We had a camel ride. Anybody here ever ride a camel? Raise, raise your hand. That's scary. Sorry that you've done that. It's, it's great fun. The problem is camels are a lot taller than you think. And I did really good with climbing and everything else, but the one thing I couldn't do is plant my left knee and swing my right knee up because I didn't still have the strength in my left knee. And I felt really bad. My wife was on the camel. It was a two-decker. Two I was going to get on with her, and I'm thinking, oh, no, my wife is going to ride off without me on this camel. <laughs> and the camel jockey. Did you know they have camel jockeys? The guy that was helping out with the camel... What he did is he, he got down on one knee and he put his right knee down and he said, he said, just step up on my right knee. Just step right up on that knee. Put your full weight. And I said, I'm a big boy. You don't really want to do this. He said, trust me. I've never dropped anyone yet. Faith is when you step up on the knee. And the Lord says, I've never dropped 
a single person. He didn't drop me. I got my ride. I've got pictures to prove it. Never do it again, but I got up on the camera. <laughs> my question is, have you, have you ever put your full weight on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a final song. I'm not going to embarrass anyone, but I want to pray a prayer today. And as I pray this prayer, I want you to think, if you've never followed Jesus Christ, you can trust, you can believe in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you.